Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting November 15th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, some small talk in multiple senses and a little poetry. Last week I attended the World Science Forum here in New York City, and we'll have some discussion about that. On Sunday, I went to hear a lecture on poetry and science from chemist Roald Hoffman, and we'll have more from him later. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some science in the news. First, the World Science Forum. Scientific American Editor-in-Chief John Rennie was there, too, and I asked him about the event. Hi, John. How are you? Hi, Steve. So tell me, uh, what's the World Science Forum? The World Science Forum is an event that Scientific American is helping to put on with uh, the company HSM, and it's a gathering of leaders from the world of uh, science and technology and also business, uh, speaking primarily to an audience of business leaders. And the whole goal is to try to convey... Uh, how it is that uh, the the frontiers of science in the 21st century are likely to change the nature of business and give people an idea of some of the the untapped possibilities as we move forward. Anything you've been at the sessions? Anything jump out at you that was particularly memorable, interesting? Well, uh, the sessions have all really been been really pretty interesting in in lots of different ways. I think, uh, of course, Jeff Sachs uh, from the Earth Institute, who's a columnist for the magazine, he gave I think what a lot of people felt was a tremendously stirring talk uh, about uh, the importance of uh, sustainability and uh, needing to address global warming uh, and other issues as as a problem because it was so important to address those as as root causes of poverty and lack of economic development throughout the developing world today. Um, of course, uh, Ray Kurzweil gave a, a, a you know always fascinating talk about his view of what the next 50 years are likely uh, to hold. Uh, he is extremely optimistic about the kinds of things that are uh, going to come from nanotechnology and other kinds of advances as uh, various sciences become more and more information technologies. So I think, for example, uh, he, he ends on a note of talking about how you know one can look forward to maybe just maybe squeaking out a kind of immortality if you last long enough. Yeah, he was saying that uh, we could gain more than one year of life expectancy each year starting kind of soon. So if you made it to that point, you might actually then see your future just stretching out in front of you. Right. Uh, uh, Kurzweil had written a book not too long ago, though, the point of which is that really we needed to just try to maintain our health uh, these days, try to live basically as long as we could, because if we could hold out for just a few more decades, we would probably reach a time when it would not be inconceivable that you could have a kind of immortality of sorts. Um, maybe that's extremely optimistic, but uh, it's at least uh, his analysis of it. Was he the one talking about downloading uh, your consciousness and then hoping your friends would continue to copy the files? I, I believe that was a, a point that he was making, yes. <laughs> I think actually Marvin Minsky also had a similar comment. Uh, it was a recurring thread. Uh, Marvin Minsky, uh, an expert on uh, AI and robotics, uh, was uh, speaking about some of the same kinds of technologies that uh, Kurzweil was uh, speaking of, too. Right, right. Hoping your friends would actually come through and copy your files again once the, uh, <laughs> make sure there was a backup or something. That's right. You know, there's always be the possibility of trying to improve on your friends a little bit. Take away those little ticks that have always bugged you about them. Such a good idea. Thanks, John. Thank you, Steve. One of the speakers at the World Science Forum was Mike Rocco. He's Senior Advisor on Nanotechnology for the National Science Foundation. I caught up with him for a few minutes after his talk. Dr. Rocco, thanks for talking to me today. It's my pleasure to be with you. Tell me, when people talk about nanotechnology, I mean, it's a word that gets all kinds of play, but what do we actually mean today, and what will we be meaning in the coming years? 
nanotechnology is the ability to work at the atomic and molecular level in order to obtain new properties and function of materials, devices, and systems. Now we can do basically coatings with uh, better properties, dispersion with uh, different uh, qualities. Um, we can target drugs inside the human body. In the future, we could do much more. For instance, we could build artificial organs. We could um, build uh, nanorobotics on surfaces. We could eventually create new system to generate energy, filtrate water. And in principle, once we get the control of the nanoscale, that means as a first level of organization of atoms in larger structures, we, are, we will be able to obtain new products and new systems that are not avail available now. One of the key things that you said in your remarks earlier, I think, is most people just think about nanotech in terms of smallness, but we have properties that emerge at those small sizes that are not available at the sizes that people are used to. So how do those properties that become available at those small sizes come into play? All the properties and function are established when atoms and molecules create the first level of structures. And uh, uh, for instance, you have uh, carbon nanotubes or graphite and or diamond. And uh, all the properties can be changed in a fundamental way at that level. With a small amount of energy, small amount of materials, the issue is to know how to do this. And in those carbon examples, the, the property is the hardness or softness. Depending, it's the same materials that you're dealing with, but you get different properties because yes. of the way that the, the atoms are lined up. That means in nature, we have only about 20, 25 most frequently used atoms that have fixed properties. However, from their arrangement, even from one single atom, we can obtain almost an infinity of properties and function. And once we understand better how things work at the nanoscale, we can obtain what property and what function we like. Uh, for instance, we can uh, obtain um, systems to better convert materials to better convert uh, directly uh, en uh, solar energy and electricity. Or we could obtain materials that are much harder. Or we could obtain um, artificial, uh, build artificial bones or artificial uh, um, kidney. Uh, by having this knowledge. You talked about the fact that most nanotech knowledge that we have today is empirical. What has to happen before we can go from empirical findings to theoretical creations? Um, the main uh, impediment now are the tools. Uh, tools uh, for both measurement and simulation what means is uh, we can, see, for instance, see in three dimension only one or two molecules at one time, but we cannot see a domain of engineering or biological relevance with atomic precision. Also, we cannot simulate from direct principle these uh, systems. Once we will have the tools, we could advance much faster. The tools are in development, and we hope in the next years this progress will be made.
And we can't do those things because we just don't have enough of a of a foundation of knowledge to to know what they're these entities are going to do next when we arrange them in different ways? Yes, uh, the progress that means is very fast. However, cannot be faster. It's not problem to put more money. It's, one needs uh, new ideas, uh, new concepts, and these are developing certainly by discovery, by um, supporting uh, interdisciplinary groups, uh, interaction with industry. That means it's a process of establishing this new technology. And certainly, in the short term, some people may have high expectations that this will happen tomorrow, and this is certainly not the case. But in long term, nanotechnology is probably underestimated. Why nanotechnology will change the way we fabricate, and the way we um, design, all the products in pharmaceutics, in um, materials, in electronics, from the, f their foundation. And so it will affect almost all uh, matter-based uh, industries and activities, including the medical field, and will lead to more economical solution and more sustainable. That means this will satisfy general societal needs. Uh, uh, better efficiency, molecular medicine, sustainable environment. Do you look at it as uh, as sort of just finding a whole new batch of elements or a whole new batch of materials that just weren't available? You know, it, like imagining a new. You can't imagine a color that that you've never seen. But is that how you look at this? Like it's it's a finding a whole bunch of new colors, finding a whole bunch of new materials that were actually always inherent in the materials that were around. Yeah. Yes, this is a good uh, metaphor. Um, that means we look w in one way to make improvements, to do more efficient materials that already exist. At the same time, we look to create new molecules or new materials that or new assemblies of molecules that have never existed in the environment or, or, never, or never have been identified. Dr. Rocco, thanks very much. appreciate your time. Well, it is my pleasure. Thank you. There's lots more about the World Science Forum on our blog, blog.siam.com, and on the 60-second science podcasts of November 10th and 13th. That's at www.siam.com slash podcast. Also, check out the World Science Forum site at www.hsm hyphen us dot com slash wsf or just google world science forum on sunday rold hoffman gave a talk at hunter college in manhattan called the language of science the language of poetry hoffman is a poet with five published volumes of poetry to his credit He's a decent chemist as well having been awarded the nobel prize in nineteen eighty one here he is after his talk so, I would like to read a poem about quantum mechanics, um, and uh, it's not easy. The poem was uh, initially stimulated by reading in Fizrev letters about entanglement of photons, and led me to think about quantum mechanics in general. Beginnings are always classical. It's chemistry, after all, to burn. A log needs to be near another. It's at its most spooky while growing. 
What one may see, so does the other. There being no evidence, entanglement falls off with separation. Mature, it isn't phased by singularities, a theory that can accommodate boundary tensions. And how will it end? Like a love, in a world demonstrably false, in the vacuum, its place filled by the new. That's the poem Quantum Mechanics from Roald Hoffman's collection Soliton, published in 2002 by Truman State University Press. Here's a short clip from the Q&A session after his actual talk. The sound quality isn't great, but it's still worth hearing. Hoffman was asked about fuzziness. Fuzziness in the sense of there not being one thing, uh, but there being several alternative causes, reasons, motives contributions, uh, ways of thinking. Scientists far fall for simplicity, a simple equation, a beautiful equation. The world out there is complex, and it operates through mostly, uh, and evolution especially operates through fuzziness. So I think fuzziness is necessary because in now in ways of thinking about science, if you... If you have these rigid definitions, and if you cannot explain it with that, that with your approach, your approach for something, your theory, and I'm thinking of something in chemistry like covalent bonding versus ionic bonding of molecules. What ionic is sodium chloride, covalent is what holds uh, organic molecules together to carbon. If you don't, can't explain it one type of bonding, you don't understand it, and the natural human tendency is to push it aside. What you don't understand, you don't find interesting. Uh, and then, but if you allow your bonding, your covalent bonding includes some ionic bonding, you have these, you have, you, you, you find one set of explanations for one molecule, find another set of explanations for another molecule, and you don't worry about the fact that you should have one coherent explanation. And you stretch the definition so that you use one of them to explain the other. It's all very fuzzy and will drive the philosophers crazy, but it's the way that things proceed. Good stuff. For more Roald Hoffmanania, check out his website, www.roaldhoffman.com. That's R-O-A-L-D-H-O-F-F-M-A-N-N dot com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, in a lot of U.S. areas, you can't really locate the pipelines carrying fuel, oil, natural gas, and chemicals. Story two, luck breeds like... Kids who have been blessed with some good luck will be better liked by other little kids. Story three, going fishing three times a week was associated with a decreased risk of dementia. And story four, Brian May, best known as the guitarist from Queen, has a new book out on astronomy. Time's up. Story one is true. Federal maps of various pipelines aren't too reliable. That's according to an article in the Houston Chronicle. Said one surveyor charged with improving the situation, quote, We have found pipelines a half mile out of position being run by the wrong company and filled with the wrong product, end quote. Story two is true. A study in the journal Psychological Science found that little kids prefer their luckier little comrades. For more, check out the November 15th episode of 60 Second Science called Kids Like Lucky Kids at siam.com slash podcast. 
And story four is true. Brian May, the guitarist from Queen, co-authored an astronomy book called Bang! The Complete History of the Universe. That came out in October. May was a grad student in astronomy studying interplanetary dust before he became a star himself with Queen. All of which means that story three, about going fishing three times a week, being associated with a lower risk of dementia, was totally bogus. Because a study in the archives of neurology found that eating fish three times a week was what was associated with dementia. Or decreased risk for dementia, that is. Of course, if you go fishing three times a week, you might be expected to be eating fish three times a week. But in reality, we all know that if you go fishing three times a week, you're probably eating bologna sandwiches and beer three times a week. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Scientific American Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out science video news and actual written news articles at our website, www.siam.com, and sample the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Beginnings are always classified. It's at its most spooky while growing. What one may see, so does the other. It's chemistry, after all. <laughs> <laughs>